All right, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. We are going to be continuing our series, Following the King. Our text today is Matthew 11, verses 1 through 19. And the title of my message for you is Witnessing to the Kingdom. I was hanging out with my friend the other day who's far from God, and we were just talking about life. He was telling me about a breakup that he had gone through and just some pain that he had been experiencing. And he looks at me and he says with a totally straight face, you know, Luke, I just really want to find a new purpose for my life. And uh, I want to find a new purpose for my life that, that can't break up with me, uh, one that I can't lose, one that isn't temporary, and just kind of went on and on and on, like describing this purpose that he was looking for, that of course Jesus perfectly fits. And we've had a lot of great, he's, we've had a lot, he's had a lot of great breakthrough since then. But I say that because I think something we tend to believe that's not true is that the world is really happy with the story that it's living out. Like people in the world are like really happy with the, you know, whole like live your truth mantra and everything that comes with that. And that, that people in the world who are not in Christ, that they, they really enjoy living for money or living for substances or living for lust or power or fame or fortune or whatever. Like we kind of, and there are loud voices that kind of seem to say that message. But I think when you actually talk to someone, when you really sit down with someone and hear their story and hear how they're doing, what you'll find is that people who are outside of relationship with Jesus, they lack purpose and they're desiring purpose. They, they're probably experiencing pain or, or, or anger or frustration or some kind of lack and, or some fear or some sadness. And, and they're actually, maybe without knowing it, craving for a better story about life and a better story about how to be human. And here's the great thing. We have a better story about how to be human in Jesus Christ. And so we are witnesses to that story. That's part of our call. You know, we're not just to, you know, supposed to tell people, hey, Jesus died for your sins. Like we are supposed to tell that. But more than that, we're supposed to be a living witness to the world, both in our words and in our actions, that there's a better way to live. There's a better story that you can be a part of. There is a, a better way to be human. And I'm going to not just tell you about it, but I'm going to show you it with how I live. We're called to be witnesses to the kingdom. Uh, the, just to give you a definition of that term witness, to witness to something is to testify or to give, or to testify, give or afford evidence on behalf of, of that thing. So we actually get to, as we witness to the kingdom, we get to like give the world evidence that there's a better way to live, evidence that there's a better story. So we're going to read the text now. As a disclaimer, you might not see the theme that I've introduced clearly in the text, but I promise it's there. We're going to unpack it. Also, this is a big passage of scripture, so get ready, take a deep breath. And try not to zone out, because I'm going to be talking for a long time. Well, I'm going to be talking for a long time anyways, but <laughs> in this particular segment. Okay, hopefully not too long. 
Matthew 11, 1 through 19. Now when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and proclaim his message in their cities. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John came. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Raise your hand if you didn't zone out one time during that. Good job. (laughs) I would have definitely zoned out myself, so props to you. Here we go. Let's just dive right in. So looking at verses 1 and 2. So Jesus has just finished instructing his disciples on the mission that he's sending them out to do, and then they went out and did it. Now, Matthew doesn't explicitly record them going out and doing the mission. He kind of gets right on to the next thing, but in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, we read about how they actually went out and what happened. Then John the Baptist comes back on the scene, and he's in prison which we'll find out more about that a few chapters later in Matthew. But from his prison cell, he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask Jesus if Jesus is truly the Messiah or if they ought to wait for someone else. Now, this is strange because if you remember earlier on in the book of Matthew, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And even in John's account, John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So why is John asking Jesus, are you actually the Messiah? We'll cover that in a moment. But then we get to verses 4 and 5, and I'm going to read it again. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, The dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And this brings me to my first point. We witness to the kingdom by doing eschatological deeds. Everybody good on that? All right, let's move on. (laughs) Just being funny. Let me break down that phrase because that's a mouthful, eschatological deeds. Let's start with the word eschatology. Eschatology 
is another way of saying the study of the end times. So your eschatology is what your opinion is about the end times. And if you've been in church for a while, you've probably had someone ask you before, hey, what's your position on the end times? Are you post-trib, P-trib, no-trib, this-trib, that-trib? And so you probably had that asked you before. So, so eschatology, it's study of the end times. And I want to make this clear. We often think, those of us that have thought about this, we think of end times as like equivalent with the book of Revelation, which the book of Revelation in the New Testament does say a lot about the end times. But the end times are talked even more about in the Old Testament than the New Testament. Ezekiel talks about the end times. Isaiah talks about the end times. Jeremiah talks about the end times. Daniel, a bunch of other of the prophets all talk about the end times. So people were having like end times debates in the first century, far before Christianity was even on the scene. So, okay, so that's eschatology. So then, what are eschatological deeds? Put pretty simply, eschatological deeds are deeds of the end times. You know, end times deeds or end times works. Derek Morphew articulates this pretty profoundly. Let me read you a quote from his book in Breakthrough. Everything Jesus announced, demonstrated, and explained was about the last things occurring now or inaugurated eschatology. Hold on to that word inaugurated. We'll get to it in a moment. Events that were only expected in the future final breakthrough of the kingdom, the end times, kept occurring in and through Jesus Christ. So let me tell you what the end times or the eschatology of the Jews in the first century was. They believed that a Messiah was coming to usher in the end times and bring about the end of the world. And that the Messiah would come and he would heal the sick and the good news would be preached to the poor and their dead would be raised and there would be freedom to the captives and everyone would experience joy. There'd be this messianic banquet. All, there'd be the outpouring of the spirit. All of this stuff was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets to come along with the end times. And the Messiah would be the one that would kick off the end times. It's kind of like, imagine you have a friend who's lived in the Caribbean their entire lives and has never seen a northern United States, North American winter, okay? Then they move here, and you are like writing them down instructions as to what to expect for when winter is about to come. Because they want to know, like, how am I going to know when winter's about to come? You know, again, they can look at a calendar, but pretend that's not part of it. So... You, so say that you write down to, to them, okay, you know, when winter is coming, the leaves are going to start changing color, and you're gonna, there's this thing called frost that you're going to see on the ground. Birds are going to start flying south, and the grass is going to stop growing as quickly. What you're doing is you're describing to them kind of like the deeds, quote unquote, the deeds of winter, like the deeds that show that the end of summer has arrived, Right? That's kind of what these eschatological deeds are. They were like deeds that the Jews expected to see when the world was going to end. And so when Jesus started healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, preaching the gospel to the poor, calming the storms, doing all this stuff, everyone was like, oh my gosh, the end of the world is here. Like, it's the end times, baby. Let's go. We're about to crush Rome. 
So that's how, that was the headspace of everybody in the first century. Uh, and I want to make this point just very clear. The deeds that Jesus did weren't just like super impressive to his observers. They weren't just like, wow, you can heal the sick. They really did signal to them that the end of the world was imminent. And a commentator named Carter puts it this way. His works, Jesus, attest his identity and express his commission as Christ, the one anointed by God to manifest God's empire over all that opposes God's life-giving purposes, sin, the devil and demons, the sociopolitical and religious elite, and death. To encounter Jesus is to encounter God's reign, and to encounter God's reign in this day was to encounter the end of the world. Okay. So now you might be thinking, well, that's strange that they were expecting the world to end because obviously it didn't. Here we are 2,000 years later, like, I guess they were wrong about the end times coming along with the Messiah. But what if I told you that we have been in the end times for 2,000 years? The end times were inaugurated by Jesus. Okay, remember I told you to hold on to that term inaugurated eschatology before? Let me go into that now. So inaugurated. Inaugurated, that term, when we think of it most often, we think about like presidents being inaugurated, right? So like a president is inaugurated, they are made the rightful president of our nation. Now, whenever every president that we've ever had has had an impact on our nation during their four or eight or longer year span. Some have been positive, some has been negative, right? So uh, a president will always have like a kind of, will have an impact on the nation. Is that full impact felt at the moment of inauguration? No, right? They are the rightful president. They are the new leader of our nation, but that's just, it's just the beginning of the impact that they're going to have on our nation. And then the impact kind of unfolds over time. This is what Jesus bringing the kingdom was like. The kingdom was inaugurated. So God's new world that is so much better than this old world, and in fact, uh, God's new world, which is like putting this old wor world to death and bringing in a completely new way to be human, like that world was inaugurated at Jesus's death and resurrection. And the consummation of that inauguration is what we've been living out, and there's even more to come in the future. Of course, we know there's a day coming when, when uh, sin and, and evil and injustice will be forever eradicated from our earth. So we look forward to that day. But... The, the world that Jesus brought, the end times, the, the, the eschaton, to use the term that eschatology comes from, that began with Jesus. And the analogy we always use to describe this is uh, not original to us. We got it from an author, but is from World War II history, D-Day and V-E Day. You guys have heard this. So in case you haven't, When the Allied forces on D-Day took back a portion of mainland France, 
and established a beachhead there. Historians agree that the war was effectively over at that point. Once the Allied forces got back into Europe, it was just a matter of time before Hitler's forces would surrender. And that's exactly what happened. A year after D-Day, we got to VE Day, when Hitler's forces officially surrendered. But even though the war was effectively won on D-Day, there was still a year left of fighting to get to VE Day. And this is exactly how the kingdom of God is. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. He won the decisive, functional, effective battle when he came. And ever since then, we've been in that in-between time where we know the war is won. We know the kingdom is here. And we press forward to that ultimate day of victory when the kingdom is ultimately consummated and everything that's wrong with this world is put to right. We live in that in-between time. Okay, so why am I telling you all this except for the fact that I just love talking about theology? Because if you know me, I do. I'm telling you this because we as the church have received an eschatological mission to do eschatological deeds ourselves. I was at Kroger this week and got talking to a guy who told me he had lower back pain Ended up praying for him. He did not get healed right in that moment that I could tell. But I've been in plenty of moments before where the person I prayed for did get healed. What is happening when we pray for someone and they're healed? It's not just like a yay God moment. Like, oh, so cool you got healed. Great. Yay God. I mean, yay God for sure. But what's also happening in that moment of healing is that we are demonstrating to that person And anyone watching, look, guys, there's a whole new world that's available and present right now. Like the kingdom is here right now. And the world that you're living in that is governed by all these different ideas and concepts, that world is ending. This world is going on for eternity. Your world is ending. You can either join this world or you can stay part of your world. It's your choice. We are demonstrating to them that there's a whole different reality they're not aware of when we pray for someone and they're healed. So for me, this just gives me fresh inspiration to go and do this stuff, to go pray for healing, to go cast out demons, to to prophesy, to do these things, because we're not just having cool God moments. We are. But we're also sending a message that the kingdom of God is here, and this world is far superior to the world that you're living in. Okay, getting back into the passage, that's verses 1 through 5. We get to verse 6, and Jesus gives this beatitude. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. So he just said all the eschatological deeds, you know. He said the whole, tell John that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. And then he gets to this passage. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. So remember when I told you that John the Baptist had seemed to have lost some kind of confidence in Jesus? We're going to explore that now. So 
it's really bizarre that John would send his disciples from his prison cell to ask Jesus if he truly was the Messiah. Again, John had already proclaimed him the Messiah, and John had baptized him as the Messiah. And John had heard a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So why on earth is John the Baptist questioning whether Jesus actually was the Messiah or not? And the text doesn't give the explicit answer, but it strongly hints at why. So here's how it hints at why. One thing you need to know about John the Baptist was that he was like uh, the most radical kind of monk, you know, you know uh, asceticist lifestyle living kind of person ever, okay? So like he fasted all the time. He didn't drink any alcohol. He would do long prayer. He lived out in the wilderness. When he did eat, he ate locusts that he put honey on. Like, this dude was wild, okay? And, and he, like, and he, so he was kind of this, like, hardcore, like, monk-like person. Jesus, contrasting from that, spent time at tax collectors' houses with tax collectors and prostitutes and other people deemed impure or uh, or sinful in the society of the day. And he not only spent time with them, he ate with them and he drank with them. And so Jesus was like categorically different from John the Baptist in that way. And what was probably happening was that John the Baptist, hearing about this person he proclaimed as Messiah, spending time at Mary the prostitute's house, and spending time with, with these horrible traitor tax collectors. And eat, not just spending time with them, eating and drinking with them. It was probably just way too much for him to handle. And he was like, I must have made a big mistake. There's no way he can be the Messiah if he's spending time with tax collectors and sinners. We see this later on in the passage. This is where Jesus hints at it. Um, this is 18 and 19. This is Jesus talking about the various critiques that have been leveled at both him and John the Baptist. So he says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. That's John the Baptist's critique. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Ultimately, what was happening was John the Baptist was hearing about what Jesus was doing and judging him. He was just judging him. He was judging. He was condemning him. He was uh, forming an evaluation in his mind about him. And so this leads into my second point, which is we witness the kingdom by resisting judgmentalism. When I first took this job, I had been an intern at Vineyard Cincinnati. And like any church, I had many, many, many great experiences there and a few negative ones. And that's just, that's true for any church. If you haven't had a negative experience here yet, get ready. One's coming. <laughs> so after leaving there and taking the job here, I recall sitting down with one of my friends who used to work at that church also. And 
starting to talk about some of the things that bothered me from my time there. And before you know it, I went from like processing, quote unquote, to venting, to just full out like slandering the church. And not only did I do that myself, but then the person I was talking to got all fired up and his bitterness and anger towards the church was even more inflamed than it was before. And I remember walking away from that moment and the Lord speaking to me and saying, uh, Luke, do you think what just happened there is like my heart at all? And I realized, wow, like not only did I spew all that vitriol, I like put it on someone else and put it in them. I put the same bitterness in my heart in them. And I just realized, wow, that was not right. I, it also, this also reminds me of, uh, I heard Micah Turnbo once share an encounter where he was saying something judgmental about the church and Jesus appeared to him with the sword, put it to his throat and said, don't you talk about my wife like that. <laughs> I think that's a great image, right? So, uh, yeah, judgmentalism. I'm sure many of us in here have struggled with that or even are struggling with it right now. And, and the Bible says so much about judgment, so much. I mean, we already covered this earlier in the series, but John, or Matthew 7, 1 and 2, let's review that. Jesus says this, Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. I used to think this meant, don't judge others or else God will judge you. But that doesn't make sense because we've all already been judged. You know, we've all been judged righteous and justified already, those of us that are in Christ. We're never going to be judged again. So this is, that's not what Jesus is saying here. When you really dig into it, what Jesus is saying is when you judge another person, you actually invite judgment from people back onto yourself. And I don't know if I see this any more clearly than in the fact that the easiest person for me to judge is a judgmental person. I mean, what about you? I, this might just be me, but someone who's deep in sin, I can have grace and mercy for them. Someone who's in failure, someone who is struggling, I can have so much mercy. But when I see someone judging that person, something just bah, comes out of me, and, it, and I just want, I want to judge them. You know, like, yeah, I got, I'm going to pay you back for your judgmentalism. Maybe it's just me. But Jesus didn't seem to think so. So, so... So when we judge others, we actually invite judgment back on ourselves, And that's not, uh, that's bad, not just because we, it is, doesn't feel good to be judged, but in my judgmentalism, I'm actually making another person more judgmental. Judgmentalism is a sick, contagious virus in that way. And so... Yeah, our witness to the kingdom, if we are judging people all the time, we have no good witness to the kingdom of God. Like nobody is going to want to be a part of the life that we claim is a better story if it's just full of negative evaluations and vitriol and bitterness and anger and judgment toward the people around us. Who would want to live that story? In fact, the world's already living that story. Now, I know some of you are just like, 
dying for a caveat to this. But what about this? What about that? Paul said you can judge in the church, blah, blah, you know. So I'm going to give you a caveat. Um, the caveat is this. There is a difference between judgmentalism and discernment. That's important to call out. Discernment looks at a situation and senses that something is like, quote unquote, off about it. It looks at a situation, hones in at one particular thing that is said or one particular thing that is true about it and goes, ah, I just kind of think that that's off. That's how discernment usually feels and looks. I remember a time when Wilson and Micah Turnbow and I were, were casting a demon out of someone and we got to a point where we thought that the demon had left and then the person started going, started like laughing and, and they started saying like, praise the lamb, praise the lamb, praise the lamb, praise the lamb. And at first we were happy, but then I just was like, wait a minute, there is something off about the way that he's saying praise the lamb right there. So I honed in on that specific thing, right? And turned out he was still demonized, and that was just the demon pretending to mask itself. So that's how discernment works. It goes, it hones in on one thing, and it says that feels off. Judgmentalism does the exact opposite. Judgmentalism looks at a situation, and rather than honing in on one particular aspect of it, it broadens out by creating an entire story about what's going on, full of assumptions, and they probably said this because they believed this, and they probably did this because I know they experienced this, and blah, and, and it just like, it just creates all of these assumptions, and there's this whole story about what is going on there. And here's why this is a problem our stories are often wrong. Not always, but more often than not in my experience, our stories are wrong about the person. And so, or at least they're only partially true. Like all these huge stories we create in ourselves about people that allow us to feel justified in judging them, parts of it might be true, but parts of it aren't true. And we'll never know what the case is until we actually talk to them and ask them. So in a lot of ways, judgmentalism, it's actually like internal slander. It's like I'm slandering a person in my mind by creating this big story about them. So discernment is good. We want to operate in discernment. When something seems off, that's often the Holy Spirit telling you that. But we stop there. We don't create 10 assumptions around it. We don't write a story in our head about it. We don't do X, Y, and Z about it. We just stay there and then... You know the best way to confirm your discernment? Ask the person. It doesn't always end there, but oftentimes it ends there. Jesus himself even kind of distinguished between these two. In John 7, 24, he said, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Don't create a story in your head. Discern. They're different. So, verses 7 and 8, picking back up in the narrative, Jesus, after giving this beatitude, begins to, for the first time, share his opinion about John the Baptist, says a bunch of stuff, just for the sake of time. Let me get to verse 11. This is what Jesus says in verse 11 about John the Baptist. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet 
the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What on earth does it mean that John was the greatest, like more than anyone, but everyone in the kingdom, so all of us, are even greater than him? Which by implication would mean you are greater than Moses. You are greater than David. You are greater than Abraham. That, that's the implication here. It's shocking. Okay? What the heck does that mean? Well, do you know what we have that none of those three had, or actually no one in the Old Testament had, John the Baptist didn't have? We have the Spirit of God living within us. We have a new creation nature and identity. Romans 8, let me, Paul really fleshes this out. Romans 8. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit since the Spirit of God dwells in you. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. We have not been given a spirit of slavery. We've been given one of sonship and daughtership. You know what that means? Well, slaves have the mindset of, I do in order to please. I do X, Y, and Z in order to please God. The son and daughter mindset is, I've already pleased God, therefore I do. That's our mindset. We've already pleased God, therefore we do. We've been talking a lot about apprenticeship lately. A lot of it might start to feel like, wow, I've got a lot of things to do and not do. And then we can eat, from there we can easily slip into uh, the slave mindset. I've got to do all this if I really want to prove to God that I'm a good apprentice. No. We don't, we don't need to prove to God that we're a good apprentice. Like God has already said you are good you are chosen, I admire you, you have my pleasure, you have my praise. And then from there, we put effort toward being a good apprentice of Jesus. Let me just read you what I wrote down about this to put a cap on it. Since the fall of man in the garden, humanity has always been on a quest to please God. The gospel of Jesus Christ wasn't a quote-unquote new and improved strategy for humanity to become more successful in pleasing God. It wasn't like a lower bar or an easier measuring stick so that we could please God. Jesus altogether did away with such a measuring stick and once and for all ended humanity's quest to please God. Instead, for those of us who've trusted Jesus, he put the eternal stamp of pleasing to God on our hearts so that no matter what we do or say or how we fail or even if we run away from God, nothing can alter the bona fide fact that we are God's children and he's utterly pleased with us. I'll end with this illustration. I'll give you a warning that this is a this might be disgusting for some of you, so I'm sorry, but it gives you a window into my life with young kids. So 
The other day I got home, and I guess there was an interim time period where my wife was wrestling with my younger boy trying to get him to sleep. My older boy was out in the living room by himself. He had soiled his diaper, taken it off, and painted our house with it. <laughs> so here I am. I've worked 12 hours. I get home. I'm just looking forward to just, just like falling into the couch and vegging out there until I go to sleep. And I walk into an utter horror scene in my own house. Okay? It was so bad. So, so that's why you know, I spent the next you know, hour and a half cleaning it up. And, but you know what? Titus never lost my love. Nothing about that changed how much I was pleased with him in the slightest. And the reality is there is literally nothing he could do to make me not pleased in him. There's nothing. There's literally nothing that he could do. And if we human parents can experience that, imagine just how much more true it is for God. He is utterly pleased with you, period. There's nothing you can do to take that away. He's already decided this is who you are, and you don't get a say in it. <laughs> Your mistakes don't get to change it. When you fall into sin, it doesn't get to change it. Even if you leave, you stop calling yourself a Christian for a while. None of that changes anything. You have been marked forever as pleasing to God. You're his kid. He's never going to disown you as a son or, or a daughter. He's going to be pleased with you forever. Would you stand with me? Prayer teams can come forward. I'm just going to do two ministry points. Some of you, I think, have not been feeling like God is pleased with you lately. And I believe that God wants to remove that, just that slave mentality the enemy has been trying to put on you and really show you, no, you're a son, you're a daughter, you are pleasing to God. And then I think some of you, your earthly parents were not pleased with you. And so pain still comes up when, when talking about this. I think God is going to release healing and love into your hearts right now. So if either of those are true for you, just put your hands on your heart, put your hands out, just tell God that you want to receive it, do something. Jesus, thank you that you took care of every mistake, every prodigal season, every evil thing that we ever did at the cross. In advance, our mistakes were accounted for. There's nothing we could do to lose your pleasure. And I pray for those of us that didn't have earthly parents like that. I thank you, Lord, that no matter how imperfect our human parents were, you are a perfect parent to us. So I ask that your healing and love would flow into our hearts right now from any wounds that are still there from our parents telling us or showing us or sending us the message that they're not pleased with us. Let your pleasure come through, Lord, and bring healing.